Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. These podcasts are hosted by Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker. Welcome to the next edition of Grid Forward Chats. Today we have with us Lisa Grow. Lisa is heading up Idaho Power out of the Boise area. And welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, what you do there uh, with Idaho Power? Sure. So I, as of June 1st, became the president and CEO of Idaho Core and Idaho Power. Um, I'm a 33-year veteran of the company. It's actually the only place I've worked since I've graduated from, from college. Idaho Power is, uh, our service area is located in southern Idaho, a little bit in eastern Oregon, we, we really have quite a large area. We serve 24,000 square miles with about 580,000 people in it. And so um, it is, we, have, we get a lot of windshield time, um, but we are uh, just over 100 years old. We are a hydro-based, a proud legacy of hydro. It, it's just been such a great place. We, I'm very proud of our company. So today is uh, August 27th. And many of us across the country, including Portland and Boise, where you are, are in some kind of a partial shutdown or there's some sort of a recommendation on group gatherings now that we're five months into all this. Before we get too deep in our conversation, how are you? How are the folks at the organization there? You know, we're doing great. Thank you for asking. Um, It is a hard time, and I really do feel for everyone, um, whether they work for Idaho Power or not. It's it's just, you know, every day it seems like there's just something new to worry about. And, and I would say overall, you know, we've kept the lights on. We've worked really closely with our customers. This is the year of things that you never expected in the middle of an economic crisis. Idaho is still growing. So um, we've, the work is still here and we've had to find ways to get it done and do so safely. Um, so the good news is we haven't had very many infections uh, with our employees and none that were transmitted at work. And so I think we got on it quickly and and dispersed everyone like many utilities did. Um, So we've got half of our workforce working from home. We've got um, the field working in pods. We, we really try to keep people separated, but it's really grinding on people. I think, you know, we've, we, we focused on focused on the health um, aspect and the physical safety aspect. And now we're really circling back on the mental health aspect. In fact, we're going to have a wellness day. Um, Everybody gets a day off um, coming up on September 3rd. Uh, and then if they can't take it because we still have to do our work, they get a floating holiday. But just just some time to just re-energize and, and get people focused because I'm just worried how long it's gone on. So you talked a little bit about the service territory there, just maybe going a layer deeper. Idaho Power is the largest utility in the state, primarily in the Boise area, right? And But you have a lot of rural communities. So how does the expansive service territory and coverage space and the structure of the organization. How does that guide the priorities and general interests that that you guys are putting at the top of the list there at the organization? We have we actually have a lot of, of diversity in our system, meaning, you know, we've got urban areas, we have very rural areas to your point, we have mountainous regions, we have high desert, we've got agriculture, we've got high tech. And so, you know, we don't have a monolithic customer base. I don't think anyone actually does. So, so again, we've been here a hundred years. We've grown up with the state. We've been really key to its development without, without power to pump um, out of the Snake River to irrigate for 
agriculture, there really wouldn't be the agriculture um, economy in the state of Idaho. And so we are we are very connected to that. Um, and I do think that our size, we're, we're a mid-sized utility. And I think that gives us an advantage of being somewhat quick and nimble, especially when these things are happening so quickly. Um, we've been able to adjust as, as we've needed to. And I think that we really do reflect our community. Uh, it's, it's very hardworking, very adaptable, and I think very innovative um, community. And I think we're the same. And we really do listen to our customers and, and try to adapt to their needs. But as I mentioned, not everybody wants the same thing. So for example, we have uh, a lot of interest in distributed energy. And so we're working really hard to make sure that that it's fair to everybody and working with all the stakeholders to make sure that whatever regulatory construct we create um, to accommodate this is, is fair. Uh, we are offering lots more services online, but we still have humans answer the phone because there are still those that want to connect that way. And we also think a lot about affordability. Um, certainly, we have customers that are very price sensitive, and we want to make sure we're thinking about that as we plan. So not long ago, Idaho committed to a fully decarbonized energy future. You, you all had a great head start on that with the hydro legacy can you talk a little bit about what that means, you know, for the organization ahead? It, you know, it seems like it's a pretty big commitment. It is. And it's one we're really excited about. And first, I want to talk a little bit about, well, why did we do that? You know, it was really two reasons. One is what you mentioned. It is achievable. And it and it does start with our hydro base. And we do have, um, you know, a great part of our portfolio that is actually non-carbon emitting. And, and hydro being one, but we've got another 1,200 megawatts of wind and solar um, contracts that we have that together have, can serve up to 70% of our load, sometimes even more than that, depending on you know, if load is, is light that day or lighter. And the second reason we did it is, is for uh, because our customers asked for it. We talked to over 100 um, of our companies that we serve, as well as residential surveys, and they all said they were interested in it, but being very mindful of reliable, affordable, then clean in that order. Got to make sure that, we, you know, we can, reliability, you know, nobody really cares about the other two if you're sitting in the dark. Affordable, because that does make a difference, especially in these economically stressed times, um, it becomes even more important that that we make sure we are good partners in that. And But we do care about the environment. And I think that we have 100 years of demonstration of that. And so it is part of our DNA. I don't feel like it's a radical shift. One of the things I'm really proud about um, for Idaho Power is that we have one of the largest um, environmental practices, if you will, inside Idaho Power. We don't we don't outsource that. We we really do have many people that are scientists and biologists and people that care for the flora and fauna that we we are responsible for. And and so I think it all came together and really made it make sense for us. And so we are we, we were able to do it without a government mandate that we're also very proud of. And so in terms of our priorities, short term is really to move away from our coal fleet. So we, we are out of our first unit at Balmy that ended last year. Boardman, are, we will be um, shutting down uh, with our partner, uh, Portland General Electric, at the end of this year. And we're still working on the Bridger plan um, with our partner, Pacific Corps. There are more to come on that. But really, we're looking at, at a glide path, not a cliff. You know, those are really important, especially as we look at the events of the last few weeks in the market. You know, we, we want to make sure that 
we move in a way that, that continues to keep the interconnection and, and, and our system very uh, reliable. And then we do, we just uh, a few months ago announced a 120 megawatt uh, solar contract. It was some of the lowest prices at the time. And those keep going down. So, so that's another key part of the portfolio. And then if you add in energy efficiency and demand response, of which we have some of the largest programs around, that, um, that gets us to about 80% of that goal. And so that last 20%, and I've heard other CEOs talking about this, you know, none of us really know what that's going to be. Technology is going to have to catch up with us. So whether it's small nuclear reactors or or some form of storage or, or something else um, that, that we can do at, at scale, you know, w- that will get us that final 20%. And so that's why we made it a 25-year goal to make sure that we are doing it in a responsible way. So without the reliability shock or price shock of um, moving too quickly. So we think it's achievable. It's exciting. I, you know, when the employees are really proud of it and energized by it. So, um, so we really think it's a great North Star that we're moving towards and, and we are already a large way down the road. So it's exciting. You mentioned customers a little bit uh, just a minute ago. How are they doing? How are your residential customers and your commercial and industrial customers doing? It sounds like the economy in general has been pretty resilient there. So like most utilities, uh, we've seen an increase in residential load um, as more people are at home and working from home. Um, we have seen um, a, a pretty big decline in small commercial, um, as again, what everyone is seeing. We've seen slight declines in large and commercial industrial load, but um, we, and we've seen irrigation is about the same. Uh, actually, last year, because of weather, it had been a little bit uh, softer. And so this year, it's, it's looking a little better. So we, we think overall, we're seeing, you know, I think net load for the year, we're down a couple percent overall. But we see a lot of new growth still coming here. And, you know, Idaho, as many think, will continue to grow, maybe even accelerate the growth we saw before the pandemic. Actually, because of the pandemic, many are seeing that um, they can work anywhere. And Idaho has sort of been discovered. And so we are still seeing record growth, which has been sort of an interesting, as I mentioned up front, you know, some of our folks who were worried about being out in the public as this pandemic unfolded, we just we couldn't not respond um, to to all the growth that was happening. Every, and it seems like every day there's there's another announcement. You know, Amazon just opened uh, a big delivery center, and there's one that's really kind of fun. It's actually cold storage for bees, and so this this big facility, uh, you, they put them in there and they sort of go to sleep when it gets cold, and so they store the bees. As you know, that's really important for agriculture. And I'm talking about tens of millions of bees. More to come, but um, but so far we're we're in a really good spot, and we think that um, we'll we'll come through maybe even stronger on the other side. Yeah, that's pretty unique against some of the other places we've been talking to. Is, is that concentrated in the Boise metro area, or is it in some of the more rural communities as well, or is it? It's you have it's everywhere. Hmm. Yeah, it's everywhere. It really is. It, it, we've seen things you know, as far as uh, east as Pocatello. Twin Falls area is really booming and and same with Boise and then to the west. So really, it, it has been kind of all over. Um, obviously, in Boise, two thirds of the population lives here. So there is a, a correlation there. But um, but the growth is everywhere. Well, that's good to hear. Dealing with the global pandemic has 
folks, you know, certainly working in new ways and maybe working with different organizations. Is Are there some new relationships that you guys have forged or some ones that you've long had that you've found kind of new value from? Well, certainly, I, I, you know, we, we have been working, there's been a lot of collaboration in many ways. I am on the task force for the city of Boise on their economic recovery task force. So, so that is a collection of community leaders, some of which I hadn't met. So I've met some new folks along the way. Um, additionally, uh, Daryl Anderson, our just former CEO, is heading up the Idaho um, recovery team as well. So, so we, we are active in those types of work teams. But we have partnered and, and really enhanced some of the relationships we have with food banks, with some of the frontline healthcare providers, um, domestic abuse shelters, the universities, uh, some of the people dealing with family homelessness is that is becoming a bigger issue. And so we really are trying to, to reach out and, and make sure that we are doing everything we can to help these, these vulnerable groups and as much as we can lessen the impact. We, we also are working with our customers in terms of COVID practices, what's working, what's not, a lot of sharing in that way. Um, and, and I am hoping that all of us are learning lessons as we go along. And, and it, I do think it will take some time to recover fully from all of this. And so many of the groups that I've been working with, we're really committed to seeing this all the way through. It isn't that, oh, okay, well, as soon as infection rates go down, we'll all go back to normal. We really see that some of the problems we're trying to address actually existed before the pandemic. And and again, you know, this just sort of is highlighting some of it and, and making it you know, worse in some cases. And so I think, again, I, I, my hope is that we can come out stronger as a community on the other side of this. So we are always looking for ways that we can contribute and, and help. It's just a really hard time. Mm-hmm. Back to the technology front. And then I know there was a topic we were going to cover right in the middle of our conversation today. As, as uh, you know, kind of a medium-sized utility, smaller on the IOU side, but it, it seems like it's allowed the organization, as you had said, to be nimble towards opportunities. Uh, so I know that Idaho is one of the very early deployment organizations with advanced meters. You guys have a pretty sizable demand-side uh, program. I think it largely leverages um, agricultural flexibility. How have current dynamics kind of impacted the way that you guys are thinking about, you know, using, you know, kind of advanced solutions and, and how those impact the operations there? So um, we, we were early adopters and, and it's really helped us to have more visibility into the system as well as give our customers data uh, on their usage. And, and I feel like that's paid dividends. In, in fact, in one of our demand response programs where we turn off air conditioners that for customers that have volunteered to be in the program, we actually use the AMI meter to do that. And so, so they have become, you know, a real standard in, in the way that we operate. And we, we hope that the data, you know, especially with people at home now, that it gives them some uh, additional opportunity to, to manage their usage and, and manage their, their bills. Additionally, we have added a field area network. The system that we we deployed is really one that is a communication system that allows us to put intelligence in devices that haven't had that. So in regulators and capacitors, where we used to have what our engineer called boots net, meaning we called people and they they went out and and, uh, had boots on the ground and 
switch these things on and off, uh, we we've we now can do it automatically. And we had actually had a system that was really um, advanced at, for the time, became super um, outdated. And so this was the way to change out something that had, had served its uh, useful life and put in new technology that now we, we will be able to do lots more. And, you know, there's, there's areas that I still think we are finding we're going to need more visibility and control. And that really is the, as distributed energy resources really start to come in bigger numbers, you know, what we're deploying now will help with that. And we're, we're still sort of working through smart inverters and things like that to, to allow that. But it's, it's, um, it's exciting. It's just, it's exciting. There's, there's lots more to come um, in, in terms of technology. I'm actually um, just coming off the DOE Energy Advisory or Electricity Advisory Council and to see what's going on with the DOE and sensors and, and the labs and the universities. I mean, there's, you know, utilities generally aren't R and D creators. We're, we're more consumers and partners. And, and so I'm really excited about what I think we've talked about the smart grid for years and years. And, and I really feel like we're starting to see it. And as prices come down and more technology is deployed, um, you know, it makes what, what's possible, super exciting. And as an engineer, I can get really geeky on it because I, I think, um, you know, some of the things that I remember thinking, learning about or talking about in college, I thought, oh, there's never just going to be one cable that brings in your TV and, and your telephone and all these things. Yeah, it's never going to happen. And yeah, well, here we are. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the same will, will happen for, for the electric grid. And I think it's, it's awesome. And I think it will help utilize um, the system that we already have built and, and I'm excited about that. Well, easily I could ask you about, about those areas for the remainder of our time, but I want to make sure that we cover um, some of the, the topics upstream a little bit. So you, so you all have you know the very significant decarbonization uh, roadmap and plan ahead. What are some of the, the, the dynamics playing out that are going to allow you all to effectively tap into that decarbonized future? Well, I like that question a lot. You know, when you think about all of us having clean energy goals, those are important goals. It's to lessen our impact on the environment and and we all need to find ways to be successful at those. And so when we started looking, when you really pull back and look at the West, we asked ourselves, where are the best resources of, of the clean resources that are available today? Where are the where's the lowest cost fuels? So if you think about the Pacific Northwest, we are blessed with hydro. You think about wind, and, and I know there are there's wind in Idaho and there's wind in Oregon, but when you really think where the big, robust um, fuel is, it, what, Wyoming and Montana come to mind. And then there's um, the, all the solar really in the south is where the, the real um, rich resource is. So how do, you, how, do, how do we deploy that? And the answer is transmission. It allows us to move that energy around from where it is best created to where it is can be consumed. And and so as we think about our future, it, it doesn't make sense to me that each balancing authority would try to build those resources in their geographic territory. Because, for example, in Idaho, one weather system can wipe out all wind and solar. We get high pressure systems that set up and you you get clouds and no wind and it just there's there, it's just not there. So so we're going to have to find ways to bring it in. And I I, I remember talking to some of my friends um, down in Southern California that they were saying when the, the energy crisis hit back in the 2000s, 
um, that those that had transmission had options so that you can move things around. So if you think about that holistically, then when hydro isn't available as much in the Northwest, well, you can go to the South and pull solar up through a transmission system. Um, If you need, California needs energy, which they desperately needed a couple of weeks ago, transmission is where it's going to facilitate that. And so we have some projects that we think are really key, not just to Idaho Power, but to the region. One is Boardman to Hemingway. So that goes from from Idaho into Oregon. And then the gateway kind of complex where it goes from Wyoming to to, um, Western Idaho. And then there's Gateway South that goes from um, Idaho down into Utah. If you think about how all those get connected and, and maybe even enhanced by what was known as the Southwest Intertie Project, the SWIP project that we actually developed and then sold the, the permit to Nevada, they have built the southern part of that and the, the northern um, section of that has yet to be built. And we believe that if we were to build that as well, not, not necessarily Idaho Power, but if it got built, really connecting Boardman to Hemingway with Gateway and the whatever they will call it, I still call it SWIP, that really becomes what we call the Intermountain Intertie. And it's another super highway to make you know available pipeline capacity there to move energy from north to south, um, much like the AC Intertie does now. Um, and so we, we think that it is really, really important. And if you there's so many experts that will say that transmission is just key to this to the clean future and the and the transition to that future, it's just really hard to build. We have, have had administrations trying to help us with rapid response teams that tried. I'm not sure that um, got uh, any acceleration. And so it's just a really messy process. And I and, and maybe that's OK. It just it can just get ground down so that it makes it just really difficult um, to build. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have the responsibility to do the the research and the to take advantage or take responsibility for the impacts. But it's, it's taken years. We started this in 2004, um, and here we are. So, so it's a tremendous amount of investment that, that in risk that you, if you don't know how to get to the finish line, that can help or that can dissuade people from picking that option. And so we are working through all of it. And again, I am not saying that people haven't done their level best. It's just that the process itself is difficult, I guess. And I think that um, as we go forward, what we're trying to get people to recognize is that I say transmission is, is the thing that everybody needs and nobody wants. And so we try to, to cite it in places that have the least impact to, you know, the fewest people. Um, but I know that, that those that feel affected, you know, that, that we have to work with them and find a way to, to have as little impact as possible. But the thing is that if we don't build transmission, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of gas get built. And if we're really thinking about a, a future that's carbon free, that's that's going to be a consequence if we don't get um, the transmission that we need built. So we are very bullish on it. And we think that it, it will help to create markets. We think it will help um, develop liquidity and, and, and availability of resources. And in Oregon, when was it March of 18, I think, where there was a big event where it got really cold and and there were storms and prices shot up and and there was it was very concerning when we looked at it you know there would have been a thousand megawatt um, capability that could have come to um, to that situation so we think that transmission is really important 
And um, it, it may not be as exciting as some of the new technologies, but I guess I'm I, I'm an engineer that appreciates the elegance of of easy or not easy, but the simple things and and the really fundamental things that that make this system work. And I always caution people that the laws of physics are still governing this. So we're very optimistic, and I think we're coming to a point where we will get the permit for Boardman to Hemingway um, with our partners Bonneville Power and and Pacific Core. So we're all excited about that and and the Gateway Project. Pacific Core is starting to build parts of that that help enhance their new um, uh, wind projects. And so I'm very proud that we're finally starting to see things get to the finish line as it has been a real uh, long process. Thanks for asking the question, though, because I think it's one that often gets overlooked. In fact, there's a really good book by uh, Russell Gold called Superpower, um, One Man's Quest to Change American Energy that really highlights um, transmission as, as the answer or an answer or a facilitator of the clean future that we all want. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. Are there net new access to other especially strong uh, renewables projects that are also kind of sitting off the grid that would be beyond these two areas that you guys are, are looking at? At this point, um, we have not started to look for the generation outside of our territory. Boardman to Hemingway has really been a play for um, the existing hydro of the Pacific Northwest because we peak at a different time than the Pacific Northwest does. Even though we're considered part of the Pacific Northwest, we peak in the summer, earlier in the summer um, than the Pacific Northwest does. So, And there is a tremendous amount of, of wind uh, as well that we believe we can go tap into that market with this pipeline and not have to create new generation. But having said that, Jackpot Solar is another great example where that's really repurposing the balmy transmission that was built uh, to bring that coal back to Idaho. We've been able to repurpose that for um, for solar. So, so those are kind of some of the ways that we're thinking about it. As you look at major transmission project, how do you guys compare the impacts of other sorts of solutions that are out there? You know, is there large scale storage or large-scale demand-side management, and how does that, you know, impact the future of, of a major build like, you know, like either of those projects or something else? You know, we we do our IRP planning. We do it every two years, um, like most utilities do, and we we really are looking at continued energy efficiency as, as part of the solution, along with transmission. Um, storage, of course, we have some of that in our portfolio is as we're examining it those costs continue to come down although duration is still sort of a challenge for large scale storage but boy that's something we watch really carefully and then as i mentioned that you know we're very interested in the development of the small nuclear reactors that that are being developed over at INL and there's a couple of companies that are working on it and and then you know we're hopeful that you know it is as much capital that is coming into this space to really figure it all out, universities that are engaged, again, the DOE. I think that there's things that you and I can't really imagine right now that will that will show up and be part of that answer. So that's why we do an IRP every couple of years and really take a look at what's 
what's available and run the models to see which ones make sense for us. And thus far, uh, transmission has been the winner, um, but there's others that are catching up. And, and so we think that that's exciting. And again, as we're growing and uh, continuing to grow, we're, we're going to need more. So working on the problem now so that we can really have a clear vision of how we get to that future is, is something that we spend a lot of time on. So as far as wider asset optimization, certainly, you know, making sure you get rid of transmission bottlenecks can be a part of that. Markets can be as well. So you guys were pretty early on in participation in the EIM. What has that regional market access been been teaching you all and and where are you you looking towards, you know, markets as they continue to evolve with everything that's going on here in the wider region? Well, I think that I'm a big believer in markets, and I think that that way we really, to your point, can optimize the system that we already have and really working with the region as a whole instead of just optimizing by ourselves inside our own BA. And we have seen somewhere around $15 million a year benefit to our customers already with just the EIM. Now, um, having said that, we have seen in the last few weeks some some struggles with the markets in California. And so, you know, how they're designed really matters. And so we need to make sure that we, we, we don't have to jump in overnight. And we, we moved somewhat quickly, but um, Pacific Corps really moved in much faster. They got in and several utilities, when all of which were super helpful to us as we joined the EIM, learned some of the harder lessons and figured a lot of really hard things out uh, before we joined. And so I think, you know, we have to be very careful. There's, we don't want to jump too fast and then find out that uh, we, we can't keep our system reliable. And the, the EDAM that we're, we're working on right now has some flaws in it that we're very concerned about that sort of got revealed over the last few weeks. And so um, we, we will continue to work at it. I believe that we, we can get there. I have scar tissue about three inches thick from all the efforts to create markets in the in the northwest and and we've learned something every time and so that's what was really exciting and i thought courageous of pacific Corps to say okay fine let's just go do it california and and so we need to keep working towards that because it, it is a i believe a lower cost solution and i think it can actually be more reliable if it's constructed right so we've got Lots of work to do, but I think it's already on its way. And I like that it's growing organically. Um, personally, I don't know that Idaho Power would ever have to full on join the RTO as a full transmission owner. I kind of like the idea of planning, you know, maybe being more Northwest centric. And then we as, a, as the Northwest entity can can come into the to the larger market Um and, and then I do believe that the Westwide sort of EIM view and even day ahead makes sense as well. The longer term resource adequacy and, and the long term planning, I think, is fine to do regionally and then see where we go. So this organic growth, I think, is the only way that we will really get there. It, 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 we can't just bite it all off. One, it's way too expensive. It terrifies everyone. So no one wants to do it. And I think that's ha, has gotten in the way um, for many years and now we're starting to see movement. So, so it's exciting and it's gotta be part of the answer. And I think we owe our customers that. So there's many areas we weren't able to cover today. So maybe we'll have to have you back on another time, but for a wrap up, uh, I wanted to ask you a two part question really around the evolution of the utility and, and the model that utilities are, are embracing. 
So as you think to the midterm, where do you think the role of the electric utility is in that midterm? And, and how does it maybe evolve some? And, and how is Idaho Power evolving and, and changing? And, and where are things kind of shifting as you look, look ahead for the organization there? I believe that the utilities are really a key part of the decarbonization journey. And I have said many times that I think the regulated monopoly is actually a business model that, that should be defended, but maybe not for the reasons that people might think. So if you sort of go through the mental exercise of well, what is what does it mean to be a regulated utility? Well, that means that we get a franchise territory so that we do have a, a monopoly in that area, although I would argue not in generation anymore, but certainly in, in service of customers um, to some degree and certainly the grid. But if you in trade for that, we have the obligation to serve. And I think that is one of the most underappreciated pieces of the regulated monopoly and maybe often forgotten. We don't get to set our own prices. So the word monopoly sometimes has this, you know, well, they're just the the evil empire over there and we don't have a choice. And so therefore it's bad. Rather, the obligation to serve means every single person that lives in this territory has access to electricity. And we just take that for granted. And you imagine a world where that's not true. So now it's just purely for profit. Those rural areas would not get served because there isn't really profit built in there. There's a lot lot of subsidies that go into the rate making that make all of that possible, but it's for the social good. So I think that we are a key part of the future for that reason. We've also, many of us have been around for over a hundred years and we have done, I believe, a really good job at building the infrastructure and making sure people have what they need. So I think that we are uniquely positioned to actually deliver on this clean future that that we all want to see. And, you know, when I think about just in general, the things that we've survived already in as, as a as an entity, and just for the record, I wasn't around during these times, but the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, world wars, you know, we have learned to adapt and innovate and continue to do so and, and let our customers really help drive what you know, direction we go. I think that um, we will continue to to play a role. Electrification is also another big part of um, that that future. And and again, we're we are really good at infrastructure, both planning, building, operating, maintaining. And so, as people want to electrify transportation, more electrifying buildings, you know, that's exciting too. And I we stand ready to partner and and lead as we need to. And I've seen a lot more of us taking on some initiatives, trying some things, not thinking it to death, which we do sometimes have um, a propensity to do. We want to overthink everything before we move. We've really become a lot more nimble, try some stuff, see what works and um, scale if we can. And so we, you know, incentives and work groups and, and deployments of things has been, I think, um, the secret sauce of where we've gotten so far. So I am really excited about it. And I, I have no doubt that we're going to get there and with our peers and with our communities and that it, it isn't an either or, you know, you either have utilities or you have all this other stuff. I think it's both. Well, Lisa, thanks for being on. We appreciate your insights and the good work there in Idaho. Uh, and we look forward to, to staying in touch and, and uh, hearing where things continue to head. Well, thank you. It's exciting times and I wish you good health. You know, make sure you continue wearing your mask, washing your hands and socially distancing. And and, uh, it'll be lovely to be on the other side of this where we can all be together again. I miss that very much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region. Thank you.